All right, take a Bible, find 1 Samuel chapter 25. We're going to work through most of the content uh, in this chapter this evening, 1 Samuel 25. We're talking about David and Abigail. And I want to start off just asking you to think about uh, not heroes, but heroines. I want you to think about female heroes. Um, Hollywood has increasingly began to promote female heroes, at least in my lifetime. It seems like they're more common than they were when I was younger. Uh, I'll give you a few example, examples of that. Wonder Woman, uh, Captain Marvel. If you like DC or Marvel, you can pick a side and whichever comic branch you like, you have a, a strong female heroine that comes to save the day. Other popular movies include The Hunger Games, uh, the new version or the new saga of Star Wars has a, a female lead heroine at the helm. Uh, if you saw the big climatic uh, Avengers Endgame movie, there was a scene at the end, they're fighting Thanos, and all the female heroes from all the movies get together and make one sort of charge at the bad guy. And there's a picture of all those ladies and a few of the directors and different folks as they're filming that last scene, all of those ladies there together. Disney has been doing this for years and making an awful lot of money off of it. They made some more money this week with Disney Plus, and you, some of you probably signed up for that. And you think of all the, the princesses uh, throughout the, the Disney uh, collection of movies um, that are, are heroes, that are heroines. Many people would look at all of those examples today and then they would look at the Bible and they would say, there's not a lot about ladies in there. In fact, some of you remember we did a series called Heroes and I actually let you vote on the people we were going to talk about uh, and I reserved a few uh, vetoes in case I didn't like your vote, but I let you vote on the people that we were going to talk about. And some of you made the comment, because I gave you a bunch of characters from the Old Testament. Some of you said, man, there's a lot of guys on here, but there's not quite as many ladies. And that's certainly true to some degree when you look at, at the story of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. There are more men lead actors than female lead actors. But there's a good one here in 1 Samuel 25 as you look at David and Abigail. And so we're going to talk about these two characters tonight. And really, tonight, David almost takes a, a back seat, at least in the hero role, and Abigail steps to the forefront. I do want to acknowledge that in our culture, this story that we're about to read seems pretty typical. It didn't seem typical to the original readers, but to us in the 21st century, when you read it, you say, Here's a story about two men who were fools and mouthy and hotheads and they were ready to fight. And then there's a woman at the center of it who's calm, cool, collected, rational, sort of pulling the strings behind the scenes and making everything okay in the end. That's pretty much every sitcom you've ever watched, right? Foolish, idiotic, uh, out of control men doing their thing, and then you've got a woman at the center of it all sort of holding it all together. That's a pretty common theme in things that we watch on TV today. This was a shocking story for the people who read it originally. It just didn't fit sort of the expected uh, rules for literature in this day and age. For one thing, the female is clearly the hero 
in this story. There's really no denying that. And secondly, not only does she step in to help a king, but she steps in to help the greatest king that Israel ever had. And you look at this story with a little bit of perspective, knowing what's coming later in David's life, and you say, this was Israel's greatest king, and he had a bad day, and it was a good thing Abigail was there to help him out on that particular day. And so we're going to wade through this story and think about Abigail and think about David. I want to show you a map quickly. I've shown you this the last couple of weeks. I just sort of want you to have in your head uh, where we're talking about. There's the Dead Sea, and the Jordan River is flowing into the Dead Sea. Throughout the, the portion of David's life where he's running from Saul, and he's been anointed the king, but he's not yet been inaugurated and recognized as king, he's sort of all over this map. He starts up in Ramah, he spends time in Nob, at one point he's in Gath, drooling on himself, he's in a cave in Adullam, he goes over to Moab with his family and he drops his family in Moab. He's kind of all over the map geographically, and he's also all over the map spiritually. It's almost like every time you check in with David in another episode in this portion of his life, he's either high or he's low. So he's, he's all over the map. Or you could say he's on a spiritual roller coaster. I mean, he's just up and down and up and down. And one day he's doing great things, and the next day he's doing ridiculous things. And this is not one of David's finest moments. And I just want to acknowledge, before we look at this roller coaster and we look at a dip in the roller coaster, that's probably your experience too. It's my experience, Right? You have had the experience of waking up on a Sunday morning, screaming at your kids, dragging them to the car, grumbling at your spouse because they're, they're you know, not ready on time, or they're too anal about the time, or whatever it is. And then after all that grumbling and rumbling and fighting and bitterness, you come into church and you look at us and you smile and you're so friendly and you sing the songs, and you fill out all the blanks on the sermon outline, and you wave at everyone in the hall, and then you get in the car and you start fighting about where we're going to go eat lunch, and the service was bad, and the food wasn't that good, and you're grumbling, and you have this roller coaster, okay? That's a microcosm, but just let's stretch it Sunday to Monday. You've also probably had the experience where you come to church on a Sunday, or maybe a Wednesday night, and I realize that every time you come to church is not life-altering, the heavens are torn open, and you just have this great spiritual experience. But sometimes you have that. I mean, sometimes you come to church, and the worship moves you in a particularly powerful way, and maybe the scripture that we're looking at speaks powerfully to your life and what you're going through. And you sort of leave church on a spiritual high, and you're thinking about spiritual things, and you're excited about spiritual things. And then here comes Monday. And it's a Monday, and you're just right back down on the other side of that roller coaster. And so when we look at this, this episode in David's life, another episode where he sort of dips down, there's something relatable here. There's something where we look at this story of David's life, and we don't have to pretend like all of these stories David is doing the right thing. Sometimes we do that when we talk about David. We take every story from his life, and we say, David's the greatest. We want to be just like David. But sometimes you look at David's life, and you say, David's a, a goober, just like I am. 
And he does stupid things and he has bad days and he has really good moments and then he follows it with really lousy moments. And there's something in there that's relatable. And I don't mean relatable in the sense of we all just say, well, that's just how we are. We're going to have good days and we're going to have bad days. But you look at David's life and you say, what's going on behind the scenes when he has these struggles? What's going on in David's life in the good moments so that we can sort of chase that in our lives? And maybe what's happening in the bad moments so we can run away from that in our lives. Here's an opening quote for you from Eugene Peterson. He says, there's nothing more common in the spiritual life than starting out right, then going wrong. We start out with enthusiasm and promise, surging with energy energy and purity of heart, and then somewhere along the line, we're corrupted and spoiled. Not one of us is exempt. Someone offends us, crosses us, doesn't give us what we want. Our self-importance flares up, and we're off to do something about it, usually off to do something about it armed with righteous indignation. Wrapped up in ourselves, we're angry, Because our self-defined identity is violated. We're off to avenge hurt feelings, a bruised self-image. We'll get even, get back at them, show them a thing or two. And that's sort of the picture that we see of David here in 1 Samuel 25. Just one piece of context before we jump in and read. The incident with David, Nabal, and Abigail took place after David spared Saul's life. And we looked at this in 1 Samuel 24. And I just want to remind you the basic flow of what's happening in David's life. He's been serving in Saul's court. He's had a pretty important role in Saul's life. He's been the guy that when Saul has a fit of depression and and this evil, tormenting spirit comes upon him, David's going to show up and he's going to play music and it's going to make everything better. So he's got sort of an important job, a spiritual job. He's playing essentially worship music, it sounds like, to combat this evil spirit that's attacking Saul. And eventually Saul just sort of loses his mind. He, He just sort of goes off the deep end. He's trying to kill David over and over and over and over again. And so David takes off and he's on the run. He's on the run after just being a worship leader. And the first thing he does when he's officially on the run is he goes to a priest and he lies to the priest. And then he follows that up shortly thereafter by going to Gath, where Goliath was from, the same Goliath that he killed, and he's so terrified of the men in that city and the leaders in that city that he drools all over himself and he pretends to be a crazy man. No courage, no faith anywhere to be found. Then you find David out in the wilderness, okay? He's been down in the valley of the roller coaster here. He's gone down. And you expect him to be down, and and he's going to just continue this, this skid. Then he's got Saul dead to rights. I mean, he's got him right there. He can take vengeance into his own hands and murder him. And everything in you with what's been going on in his life says he's going to do it. He is not in a good place spiritually, and he doesn't do it. He's back up on top of the hill of the roller coaster. And he won't let his men harm Saul. He won't let them uh, attack Saul. He says, we're not going to do that. This is the Lord's anointed. And Saul survives and lives to see another day. So David does the right thing. He's extremely merciful towards Saul. He's forgiving and loving to his enemy. And then we see him in this episode, and he is absolutely raging. I don't want to talk about this too long, but I want you to look at verse 1. Maybe this has something to do with it. It says Samuel died 
all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. You know that David more than likely had a soft spot in his heart for Samuel. Right? Samuel was the one who showed up in Bethlehem and anointed him to be the king, right? sort of bestowed this promise and this blessing on his life. And when it says that all Israel assembled and mourned for him, you understand David wasn't part of that group. He's a, a refugee. He's a, a man on the run. He's, he's wanted. He's got a contract on his head. He can't just show up to the funeral. But maybe he finds out. Maybe there's grief in his life. You've probably had that experience. In the midst of grief, you may be particularly vulnerable or susceptible to certain temptations or to certain sins or just to sin in general. And so maybe there's, there's something going on in David's life on this level. The story begins at the back part of verse 1, and we just meet all the characters. And so I just want you to follow along as we meet some of these people. We'll read verse 1 down to verse 13. The scripture says this, David rose and he went to the wilderness of Paran and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved He was a Calebite, meaning a descendant of Caleb. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. Thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you. That's the first thing David wanted them to say. Peace be to you. Peace be to your house. And peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time that they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son, David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David. And then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man... Strap on his sword, and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword, and about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. And we'll stop right there. I just want you to see the characters before we jump into the action. David and a group of malcontents. Remember, that's the people who are with him. The the disenfranchised, the people in debt, the people in distress. All these people who don't have a place in society have found a place with David. They're acting as unofficial peacekeepers on the edge of the kingdom. Right? This is sort of like vigilante justice at its best, and the good guys are out there. We're thankful the good guys are there. There is no sheriff. There is no police. There is no 911. They're down south on the edge of the kingdom. The Philistines are sort of 
uh, brushing up against this part of, of Israel's border. And it's just chaos. It's the Wild West. And so David and his men, they have nothing else to do, just surviving. They sort of take it upon themselves to keep the peace out in this area. And that's one of the things David appeals to when he sends this message. He says, hey, we've taken care of your guys, right? The Philistines haven't been able to come attack them. We haven't been an imposition on them. We've been sort of playing the peacekeeper out here in the wilderness. Then we meet Nabal. He was rich, foolish, mean, and dishonest. What a guy. Rich, foolish, mean, and dishonest. He was a descendant of Caleb. You see all these things in the text. He was rich. He had lots of livestock, lots of animals. He was foolish. You wonder how the guy gets the name Nabal. Some of you have a footnote, and it explains in the footnote that the Hebrew name Nabal literally means fool. So you wonder, is that his mother's name? Like, did mom and dad sit around and say, what are we going to name this sweet baby? We could go with David. We could go with Jesse. We could go with Samuel. Or we could name him the fool. Maybe mom did that for some reason or other. Maybe that's a nickname he picked up along the way. Maybe he was just known for being a, a foolish man, and so people called him Nabal. What you know is this. The Bible says that the fool in his heart says there is no God. That's Nabal. In his heart, deep in his heart, right? The core of who he is, he believes there is no God. Or if there is a God, he doesn't care and he's so far off, he's not paying attention and there's not going to be any judgment or any sort of reckoning or any consequence or any, any sort of judgment in the end. So that's Nabal. He's a fool. He's rich. He's mean. He's harsh with people. He doesn't have a kind word to say here. And he's dishonest. And I'm going to come back to this in a minute. He owes David. David has provided a service for him. David has helped his business prosper. He owes him and he refuses to pay and get square with David. And so he's dishonest. As a Calebite, he's a part of the tribe of Judah. He's basically David's cousin. These guys are related. So you got David. You got Nabal. All these things we learn about Nabal, rich, foolish, mean, dishonest. Lakato says, says this in summary. He learned people skills in the local zoo. Never met a person he couldn't anger, a relationship he couldn't spoil. Nabal's world revolved around one person, Nabal. He owed nothing to anybody and laughed at the thought of sharing with anyone. That's who he is. And in between these two guys, David and Nabal, we have Abigail. She's described as discerning or wise and beautiful. She's the heroine of the story that we're about to read through. Just a couple of things I want you to notice before we press on. David did not send these men to pick a fight. You live in the United States, Western culture. If I said to you, look, Thanksgiving's coming up. Don't cook. Just go knock on your neighbor's door on the feast day and tell them you need some food. In Western culture, you would say, Oh, that's weird. And if your neighbor comes to do that to you, you might respond like Nabal and say, absolutely not. Go home and turn the football game and get the peanut butter out. I'm not giving you anything to eat. 
There is no way you're having any of my food. That's not sort of how we do things. And it seems strange to us when we read that David waits till this feast day and he sends these guys. It, it kind of sounds like he's an opportunist, right? I just want you to think about it from David's perspective. He's already done all the work, right? He's protected these guys. He wasn't asking for anything up front. He doesn't send his men to make any demands. In fact, they show up and three times they say, peace, peace, peace. Right? We are coming in peace. We're not here to fight. We're not here to demand anything from you. We're not asking for anything specific. And he has waited. David has waited to send these men until Nabal would be able to provide something. It, it's the harvest. It's this, this shearing time. There's an abundance at this point. And David says, now we're going to go. We're going to ask for a little bit of food. We're going to be respectful. You're going to go in peace. You're going to say that I am his son. right? That may not sort of strike us as important on any level, but David is saying, I'm underneath you. You're the big dog. You got all the money. You got all the power. I'm your son, and we're just asking for a little bit of food after the work that we've provided. Nabal responds a couple of ways. First, he says, I don't know who David is. That's a lie. He knows who David is. When Abigail shows up, she knows exactly who David is, and she says Nabal knows too. So he knows, but he says, I, I don't know who this guy is. I don't know this guy anything. And essentially, he accuses David of committing the crime of treason. Did you catch the little line in there where he says, you know, there's a lot of servants breaking away from their masters these days. What he's saying is, you need to go back to Saul. All right? He's sort of bought the, the government-run policy, state narrative propaganda that David's a bad guy, a fugitive on the run. And he's basically saying, you're in the wrong here with Saul, and you ought to go back to him. And David loses it. I mean, he, he completely just flies off the handle. I was thinking about it this afternoon when David says, initially, this is the first thing out of his mouth, verse 13, every man strap on his sword. That escalated really fast. Like, do you remember the movie Father of the Bride? Remember that movie? My girls think that's the greatest movie in the world now. They like to watch this movie when it comes on or they record it and we watch it on Netflix or whatever. And in the movie, George Banks, he overreacts about everything. Right? Like every little thing that comes up, he just flies off the handle and he starts ripping buns apart at the store and screaming at the guy that works at the. I mean, he's just, he's crazy. And that's David in this moment. Like this is a total George Banks fly off the handle. He said, Hey, we're coming in peace. We're coming in peace. We're coming in peace. And the ball says, No. And David says, All right, I'm getting my gun. And I'm coming after you. Everybody get your weapon. And here we go. And they've got a couple hundred guys who are ready for a fight. Here's what I want you to understand about this situation. David and Nabal. Nabal and David, they're both in violation of the law. And I don't mean like social norms. I mean Old Testament law. They are both in the wrong. You can look these verses up later. Deuteronomy 24.15 says... If you owe somebody wages, pay them. Don't hold them back. Don't take advantage of them because they're lower on the socioeconomic scale and you're higher. If you owe them wages, 
pay them. Nabal owes David. It's the right thing to do. Whether they have a spelled out contract or a previous agreement, it's the right thing to do. He owes him wages and David knows it and Nabal absolutely refuses to pay. What about David? Well, Leviticus 19.18 says, love your neighbor. Does it sound like loving your neighbor when David says, get your sword, we're going to go kill them all? I know that Nabal is sort of poking the bear in this situation, but David is completely overreacted to this situation. You expect it from a guy whose name is Fool, right? His name is Fool. Foolish, stupid, idiotic, moronic. That's his name. That's his reputation. You don't expect it from David. And you certainly don't expect it after David has been so merciful to Saul. Right? Here's a guy in Saul who has repeatedly tried to kill David multiple times. Tried to pin him against the wall with the spear. And David's got him dead to rights in a cave. And in one of his better moments, he says, no, 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 we're not going to kill him. It's not the right thing to do. And he won't let his men attack Saul. And he's merciful. And he's kind. And he gives him another chance when he clearly doesn't deserve another chance. So you think, okay, David, he's very merciful. He's very patient. He's very forgiving. And the first words out of his mouth are, every man strap on his sword. Peterson says this, David lost his temper. He lost all sense of his identity as God's anointed. David, who had been able to see maniacal King Saul as a temple of the Holy Spirit, now couldn't see Nabal as anything but an ugly piece of garbage that was a stench in his life. Check this out. David was on the verge of becoming another Saul, out to get rid of anyone threatening his status and role. What an irony, right? David's on the run because someone wants to kill him essentially for no reason. And what does David do? He says, we're going to go kill this guy for really just a small insult. It's not loving your neighbor. This isn't even an eye for an eye. This is David completely escalating things way out of proportion. And he's ready to murder this man for a small insult. Here's one of the things I want you to see. David's on this roller coaster, right? He's just come off one of the greatest moments where he shows mercy to Saul. Just a great, godly, Christ-like moment. And then he's crashing and burning. You have to fight sin every day. Every day. You get no days off. Every single day when you wake up, you got to fight sin. It does not matter how good the, the sermon was Sunday. On Monday, you got to wake up, you got to put on the armor of God, and you have to fight sin. And it doesn't matter how great your, your Wednesday night lesson was and the, the things that you talked about in David's life, because Thursday morning's coming, and tomorrow morning, what we talked about tonight is not going to just magically take care of the temptation you face tomorrow. Right? What did the Lord say to Cain when he's angry that his offering was not accepted? He said, Cain... Sin is crouching at your door. It wants you. It's waiting for you. It's coming for you. There's no question about it. And you look at David's life and you see this up and down. And the, one of the takeaways for you and me is every single day we have to be ready to fight sin. There's a great Puritan named John Owen. 
He wrote, wrote a book called uh, The Mortification of Sin. And in that book, John Owen said, Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Every day that's true. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Every single day you have to fight it. You have to be ready. You have to be armored up to face the temptation that comes your way. Paul talks about it in Romans 8.13. He says, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. Right? If you put to, put to death the sin in your life, you live. If you don't, you die. Every day it's a life and death fight against sin and temptation. We talked about Sunday, Satan's role in all of this. The devil is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour. So when you wake up tomorrow morning, sin is crouching at your door and Satan is prowling around to destroy you. Happy Thursday. And then Friday. And then Saturday. And then Sunday. Every single day. And David is just on this roller coaster of up and down. He's had great moments of obedience and then he just completely crashes and burns. Into all that chaos comes Abigail. She steps onto the scene as a peacemaker. A peacemaker. Let's read 1 Samuel 25 verse 14. It says, One of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us. We suffered no harm. We did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us both by night and by day, all the while we were with them keeping the sheep. Now, therefore, know this and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Just a small side note. Don't be the kind of person that no one can come talk to. Don't be that person. Don't be the person that every time somebody comes to you with a concern that you just explain it away and you get angry and you get defensive. That's Nabal. He was a fool. And everybody knew this about him. This servant knew, I can't go talk to Nabal about this. He's not going to listen to anybody. He's a know-it-all. Abigail, verse 18, made haste and took 200 loaves, two skins of wine, five sheep already prepared, and five seas of parched grain and 100 clusters of raisins, 200 cakes of figs, and laid them on donkeys. By the way, that's not like running into the pantry and grabbing a box of Cheez-Its. Like, this is risky. You understand that? For her to gather up all that stuff, presumably she's doing it in secret. Nabal doesn't know about it. She's really sort of putting her neck on the line here. Verse 19, she said to her young men, Go before me, behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him, and he has returned me evil for good. 
God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. Do you see how this has escalated even more? (laughs) David says, not only am I going to kill him, I'm going to kill all of them. Do you remember what happened when David went to Nob and lied to the priest and Dog the Edomite heard it and went and ratted him out and Saul went back to Nob and he killed all the people in Nob? And do you remember when David got the message from the one guy that escaped? David is crushed by it. And he says, this is all my fault. David knows the pain and the weight of an entire family, an entire village being slaughtered. And here he is in rage saying, I'm going to kill Nabal and I'm going to kill all of them. Verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Just underline that phrase. On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the, the Lord lives, and notice that's Lord in all caps, as Yahweh lives, and as your soul lives, because the Lord, Yahweh, has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. Now then, let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. She has said multiple times, I am your servant. And now she says, please forgive the trespass of your servant. What has she done to wrong David? Nothing. And yet she's taking all the wrong on herself and saying, forgive me, forgive your servant. For the Lord, Yahweh, will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of the Lord, Yahweh, your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out, circle that word sling, sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good he has spoken concerning you and appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt very well with my Lord, when Yahweh has dealt well with you, then remember your servant. All right, this is a beautiful picture that Abigail is sort of stepping into the middle of this mess as the peacemaker. Peterson says this, David is full of himself. He's empty of God. The emptiness is visible as ugliness. Abigail recovers God for David. David's not talking about God. The only thing David's saying about God before Abigail shows up is, I'm taking an oath in God's name that I'm going to kill these people. Right? I'm using God's name as an oath in murder plans, murder plot. Abigail shows up. She restores 
She recovers God for David. David is earlier described as beautiful, but there's no sign of it here. Beautiful Abigail restores the beauty of God to David. Here's some things about Abigail that I want you to see. She displays humility, honesty, wisdom, and faith. She steps in as the peacemaker, and as the peacemaker, she shows humility, honesty, wisdom, and faith. I'll just cut to the chase and say, if you're going to be a peacemaker in the lives of other people, in this church, in your family, these things have to be true of you. Humility, honesty, wisdom, faith. Humility, what does she do? She gets off and she immediately bows to the ground. Now that's strange because I told you she's the heroine. We expect the heroine to stand up straight, arch your back, chin up, be confident, And yet the heroine of this story is on her face, claiming to be the servant. Does that sound like anything Jesus talked about to you? If you want to be great, be a servant. Don't don't chase greatness by pushing your chest out and being a braggart and a know-it-all and making everyone do everything for you. Jesus said greatness is found by serving other people, and she does that. There's humility here. She accepts responsibility for all of the mess, right? She says, it's my transgression. She says, on me alone be the guilt. This is like David, I mean Daniel, excuse me, Daniel. When Daniel is praying, he's living in exile, he's praying a prayer of repentance. He doesn't say, God, forgive those people for their sins. He says, forgive us for our sins, All the wickedness he details out in this amazing prayer of repentance, Daniel 9. And he doesn't say it's all their stuff. He says it's our stuff. I'm guilty just like they're guilty. And that's what Abigail's doing. So you see her humility. You see her honesty. She doesn't get off and try to lie about Nabal. She doesn't say, oh, you misunderstood. He's really a great guy. Give him a second chance. She just says, he's an idiot. He's an idiot. What can I say? She's honest. She has faith. She's the only one in the story talking about Yahweh. Everyone else talking about swords and killing young men and I'm going to get vengeance and this is going to be set right by the end of the day. And she shows up and she starts talking about Yahweh, the Lord. Wisdom. I asked you to circle uh, a verse or a word down in verse 29. Sling your enemies. The lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. This may be just reading too much into it. But I think when she starts talking about a sling, David's mind goes to where? Goliath. He thinks about one of the greatest moments in his life, one of the faith-filled moments of his life, one of the moments where he's not focused just on killing Goliath. He's focused on God and his glory and his reputation. And I think that one word sort of just sticks in David's mind and he says, man, I'm approaching this completely different than that. They're both a fight, but that one needed to happen. And that one was a defense, not just of our egos, but of God's glory. This really doesn't have anything to do with God's glory. I just feel like he's crossed the line with me. I just feel like I need to set him straight. Humility, honesty, wisdom, and faith. All of those characteristics come into the middle of this conflict and it completely turns the tide. It's remarkable. 
Abigail is marginal because she's a woman in a man-dominated world. She's marginal. Think about this, because she's weaponless in a sword-rattling world. She's unarmed. She just got food, and her face bowed to the ground. Mostly, Abigail is marginal because she's beautiful in a materialistic, utilitarian world. Lakato shortens all that and says, beauty can overcome barbarism. Right? This is a reminder that grace wins. Grace is more powerful than just hatred and anger and bitterness and clamor. When you find yourself in a situation where you think you've been wronged, it is so easy. Your natural instinct is just to lash out at the, at the other person. Just to, to rage against the person who's done, done you wrong. And maybe you do that to their face. Or maybe you're a little bit of a coward, so you do it on social media. Or maybe you're a little more of a coward, so you don't do it to that person, but you do it to anyone else who will listen. And you just sort of jump into the same mess that's going on all around you. The chaos, the clamor, the fighting, the ugliness, the bitterness. And Abigail walks into the middle of it. She doesn't show any of that stuff. She just shows grace. And grace wins. Abigail plays the role of a mediator in this story. Verse 24, she fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Put the, the guilt, put the blame, put the problem all on me. You look at this story and you're reminded how inconsistent David is. Just totally inconsistent, high and low and up and down. And you see this conflict between these two men. My guess is you've never found yourself in a conflict with someone shearing sheep and you've asked for lunch. Like, specifically, you can't say, you know, this happened to me last week. This exact thing. What are the odds? But you have found yourselves in situations where there's just hatred and conflict and strife. And what we need are peacemakers. Right? On social media, we need peacemakers. We don't need one more person to get on there and be bombastic and gripe about this and complain about this and run that into the mud and tell everyone how awful this is. I think we've got enough of that. And I don't think it's fixing anything, do you? We don't need any more of that. In our families, in your family, what you need is a peacemaker. You don't need someone that's just going to cause more problem, more division, more fighting, more bitterness, more anger. You need a peacemaker. Guess what we need in churches? It's not more people who think they're right about everything. It's not more people who can't be approached because they, we know that they're not going to listen to anybody. We need more people who are, quite frankly, like Abigail. Humble, honest, wise, filled with faith. We need people like this. We need peacemakers. And ultimately, what we need is the true peacemaker, Jesus. Okay? Let's read how the story ends, and then we'll think about how Abigail is pointing us to Jesus. Verse 32, David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Finally, he's talking about Yahweh. Right? Earlier, he talks about God, and it's, I'm going to kill these guys. God do so to me and more. And now he's saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. His focus has changed. Who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion 
And blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning there had not been left in a ball so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. Circle that word peace. Right? There's been conflict all through the story, and now we have peace because of her intervention. So I have obeyed your voice and granted your petition. And we'll just read how it all wraps up. Verse 36. Abigail came to Nabal. Behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. In the morning, when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. And he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. God took care of it, right? David didn't have to show up and pull a sword out at all. God handled it. Verse 39, when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal. He has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. And the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel. They said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. She rose, bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. She hurried, rose, and mounted a donkey. Her five young women attended her, and she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. The key word in all of that, is verse 35 when David sends her home and he says, I'm sending you home in peace. And I want you to see that Abigail really is a picture in this story of Jesus. And that's completely backwards to how we normally think about stories of David. We normally read stories of David and we say, okay, somewhere, somehow, some way in this story, David's going to point me to Jesus. And in this story, David acts just as foolish as the man whose name is fool. And it's Abigail who comes into the story and plays the role of a mediator, the role of a peacemaker, the role of a go-between. Lakato says it like this, Abigail never knew Jesus. She lived a thousand years before his sacrifice. Nevertheless, her story prefigures his life. Abigail placed herself between David and Nabal. Jesus placed himself between God and us. Abigail volunteered to be punished for Nabal's sins. Jesus allowed heaven to punish him for yours and mine. Abigail turned away the anger of David. Didn't Christ shield you from God's?